what Renata was really good at was just making me demystify that I think I wasn't worthy of it. Why not? I don't understand. I remember one time Shireen had done a top eight place at a World Cup and it was like, oh my gosh, it's amazing. And, she, and Renata goes, she should. Like, what? you know, she's trained this long. She should by now. And I was like, that's kind of, oh. And it was not, it wasn't meant in a mean way. It was like, those should be your expectations. Why would you apply so hard to something and not expect something that great for yourself? That's Monique Cavallars, Olympian for Team Canada in women's epee fencing on this episode of Silver is the New Gold. I'm Karen Lonso, and this is Silver is the New Gold, a podcast that shares stories and insights about women's participation in sports after 35. Monique Cavallars has always loved the Olympics and has been a part of the Olympics for Canada in some way since Sydney 2000. First, being part of the bid for Toronto 2008, which ultimately went to Beijing, then as an athlete and part of the women's epee fencing team in Athens in 2004, and most recently, being an athlete mentor for Team Canada at Tokyo 2021. Her love of sport and the Olympic movement is infectious, and her road to competing at the Games is again very interesting and unique. As I continue to have conversations with all of these amazing women, the takeaway message becomes more clear. The ways and means to love and participate in sport are very personal, and I love hearing about them all. Here's Monique to share her story. Hi, Monique. Uh, Thank you so much for coming on the podcast and chatting with me today. Thanks for having me. This is exciting. Yeah, so you've had a pretty interesting life. And first, can I just say that you were born in London, Ontario, and I'm going to give some props to little London for the (laughs) world-class athletes we have produced uh, besides yourself. Yeah, I know, right? Damien Warner, Decathlon, Jesse Fleming, uh, women's soccer. I know. And the list is long. That's cool. I know. Tessa and Scott, Christine Nesbitt. I'm not Olympian, but I'm from here, so that's why I was giving it a shout out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, you've you've been exposed to modeling and Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you've had a pretty interesting life, and and you have some acting credits to your name, but <laughs> to, that's still some. <laughs> but what drew funny. you? Yeah, yeah. But what drew you into sports? What, uh, and particularly fencing? Um, you know, it's funny. Uh, I grew up on a farm, uh, tomboy at heart, um, rough and tumble. And when I turned into a teenager, um, went to school, I realized that, that being a young person who loved to compete was, it was a weird landscape, one that I couldn't really relate to in, in the context of high school. Um, and so I played all sports, did a whole bunch of things. And then I saw the Olympics when I was 12 years old, 1988, just before going into high school. And it was the first time I'd ever seen women on, compete in sport on TV and see the national pride of being a Canadian. And I said, I want to do that. So that was pretty much, I wanted to go to the Olympics. It wasn't, I didn't want to be a fencer at the Olympics. It was in complete reverse format. One I wouldn't recommend. Mm. <laughs> so I really entered it. <laughs> <laughs> I, it, I kind of, 
that was the sort of the catalyst was just seeing, I think it was also just an awareness when you're that young person and you could sort of see the world as a little unsafe, you're hearing and parents discuss things and you're watching the news and you're, you know, your messaging is unconsciously being told it's unsafe. And here I felt like we're watching this Olympics and I hadn't seen it because it had been boycotted. It uh, it was 84 Olympics. So 80 had been Mm -hmm. boycotted. And I remember thinking, wow, like the whole world is stopping in a peaceful time to enjoy this experience. And I felt like, wow, wouldn't it be? So there was a very collective concept of what the Olympics were. And I thought that was really amazing starting in school. And then uh, saw uh, Tanya Tigerson was in my, my uh, oh, high yes, school. Yes. Yeah. So she had um, her coach had come out and did a demonstration. And I thought being a very, uh, you know, uneducated, like young person, I didn't really give a lot of props to the sport. I thought it was like, eh, it wasn't that cool, like volleyball, basketball, <clears throat> soccer, field, whatever, whatever was drawing my attention. So but I was doing a sport called uh, chitraflon, which was like running, swimming, shooting, and horseback riding, which was the so literally sport. every every the pentathlon without the fencing. That's right. <laughs> so it's like a grassroots sports to modern pentathlon. Okay, I did that is I did that in my pony club because I grew up on the farm riding horses, and then all my friends that were really good and I really enjoyed that environment were saying, "Hey, if you start fencing, you can actually, you know, you, there's a national team and there's world championships." And that sort of was very appealing, but I was still really reluctant. Then I saw Tanya. She was a really cool cat in my school. She mm-hmm. was like amazing. And then all of a sudden I see her fencing. I was like, okay, let me give this a try. I tried it and very quickly became um, intrigued by the fact that it was like a little video game. Yet, you know, you get to reset your guy and you get to go again. And it was very <laughs> yeah. immediate gratification and there were no style yes, points. Yes. It was just... Uh, so that, and I, I, I was humbled really quickly because I sized up my opponent my first time and thought, you know, like, again, being a bit of a punk, kind of like, how hard could this be? And then she just, like, kind as anything, but I remember her ripping me apart and I was like, that's not cool. And I also liked that you could be so aggressive as a woman, as a young lady, which mm. was, you know, in our culture where, you know, you were being told to be nice. And yes. here I was allowed to hide behind a mask and just be aggressive, which I thought this I'm, I like. <laughs> so, and it's not, it's not only allowed, it's required. I know. And, and yeah, it's required and you're looking at your opponent and they're doing the same thing and we're allowed to have permission to be these things, which I found really cool. So did that, did modern pentathlon made the national team and then, uh, and then found myself realizing I was enjoying the training and fencing and coming home from fencing tournaments, just as uh, coming back from Montreal at these elite circuits and always with the intention to get better as a pentathlete. But I really started to see how returning home, I I would get more excited about that. And then women's pentathlon had not been accepted in the 96 Olympics, but women's epee fencing had been. And so this was going into university. I think I was in second year university doing on the swim team and running and on the fencing team uh, at a club in Toronto, trying to balance these plates as a pentathlete does. And then, uh, and then I realized, okay, if I want to make the Olympics, they're telling me it's going to get in in 2000, but I'm almost guaranteed FAS and I think I'm enjoying this. And so I just said, I'm going to jump ship and just fence. That's pretty much what decided it for me. I also knew I would, I was liking it more. I could see that in hindsight. So 
Right. As long answer to your question, but <laughs> yeah. So did did fencing come easy for you right off the top though, or did you have to work harder at it? Um, um, I think well, this... I didn't really have a coach at the beginning. Oh, that And <laughs> <makes it> <laughs> no, I didn't really have a yeah. I think it was um, a sport where it was easy and hard in two different ways. Easy in that there wasn't a lot of people doing it. So being aggressive and very offensive was really, really uh, a secret sauce and, and being committed. Um, I had been somewhat a, a, like a little bit more, um, I had a, a well-rounded sports background. So I felt like um, just through training and discomfort or um, yeah, that, that didn't, challenge me so much it was just body mechanics and what have you so that was different the level wasn't so high so again you could advance quickly if by just sheer grit um where I found it challenging is when I started doing some national tournaments and I realized there was uh athletes that had foundational skills that I wasn't getting and I could see there was like this mm. they look different than me they're they've got like a a base and it would usually be the athletes coming out of Montreal or Quebec and there were these coaches and I was like oh I don't really have one that way so in university I finally I started very late I started like 17 which isn't recommended <laughs> start much earlier if you could and then I had a really great coach his name's Peter Ho out of Toronto um who uh changed like I had him I, I worked with him for eight nine years he changed my life along with some great teammates um just teaching me a lot of things it, that I didn't know. Um, and so he made it easier. And what I also liked is he empowered his athletes and that he would train them hard. And if your commitment was high, he'd give you everything, but then you'd get to a tournament and he'd be sitting in the corner, sleeping in a chair. Cause he just, <laughs> yeah. so I've done my job. It's your turn. So, you, so he would, he would totally just not really provide you a lot of feedback as you were in and at times you'd look at him like help me out here but he didn't want to do that and he told the story about how he was a coach who did that a lot when he moved before moving to Canada and how his athletes actually had like an intervention with him like that's not adding value that's actually stressing us right out mm. stop it and so he had done a complete 360 and said I'm not going to do that and I didn't know it at the time but it was such a huge gift that he was giving me by letting me fall on my face frequently on my own. Yeah. <laughs> so that was, it was great. But then I'd show up wanting, he'd watch, he'd learn, but then he, or sometimes he wouldn't even go. And then we would just go back to work. So it was kind of cool that way. Yeah, it's interesting. And as I talk to more people, I'm kind of interested in this whole like skill versus will spectrum mm -hmm. um, and all the different paths that people take to, I guess, become their best. Um, and like recently I was watching this Netflix documentary untold. It's the, the breaking point one. Uh, it's about a top oh, rated American. Yeah. yeah. About a top rated American tennis player in the early 2000s. I saw that. You I did. It was, it was really good. Yeah. Right. And I mean, uh, the story is yeah. about mental health and it's really timely yes. in terms of what's happening today. But what I thought was interesting was the path that, so Marty Fish and Andy Roddick were best friends growing up. Right. They trained together and, and Andy had early success on the pro tour and right. he kind of came out of the gate and he got it uh, and he, you know, went to the top and then Marty had to take an entirely different path, but he had yes. maybe not the skill and the in same like innate uh, talent, but he had the will mm. and that really pushed him to the top. Uh, and so, 
yeah, I, I just, I think it's really interesting about, you know, how people combine the two and, and where on the spectrum mm. they are. I definitely think I'm higher on the will side. It's interesting you say that because I even think about um, uh, having made the Olympics was always my goal. And then I was in a situation where we could have meddled, which was crazy. But I also recognized that the margins were so thin on what decided that I went to the Olympics. Mm -hmm. And one of my teammates um, who didn't go to the Olympics, who was just as huge a part of our qualification process was Marie-Ève Pelletier from Quebec. And there was five of us for the last 18 months. And so when you say that will and skill, um, what's sort of crazy is, yeah, I can sit here now with that on my resume. And, and it is true. It was amazing. But would my success or or their you know or story or whatever you be more important or less important because she hadn't gone but yet she was just as much a part of our success in even qualifying which just kind of blows my mind um that then as an as we observe that that will and skill is like her will was there her skill was there she sacrificed just as much as, yeah. as i had and there is a little piece of luck Mm-hmm. that we have to realize exists in anybody's high performance luck in you know having a great coach luck in just having one point go another way luck in that you know you're healthy for a tournament when you're opponent it like there's certain things that you just a non-controllable that yeah has to be recognized and I feel if you do it also helps you with your mental health a lot because there's a, a freedom of knowing I'm doing everything I can. And then there's a little part of it that I just hope it goes my way. And, and, and then there's a, a relaxedness I feel to sort of say, well, I did my best. This is, that's gotta be enough. Sometimes it's hard to know doing your best doesn't mean being the best, hmm. which is hard. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I always, I was, we were doing like a team competition yesterday and, uh, we were, me and one of the other young friends were talking about a, a tournament way back. And I remember I had come out of pools like hmm. way up at the top and sure. she had a bad pools and I got her in the first round and I lost. I was like, I always get those people <laughs> who like <laughs> die yeah. in pools and then they wake yeah. up, but I always draw them in like the first round. Like that's, you yeah. know what I mean? And sometimes I'm like, damn, I yeah. just so unlucky. Like... <laughs> God. I know. So unlucky, but then also it's interesting. You said something I found when I, when I heard you respond. I always get. So there's messaging. Yeah, I, you know. Tell yourself I know. Too. You're like, you you do well in pools and then you're waiting for the other shooter drop. Who am I going to get? And I have done the same thing. I remember being at a World Cup in Belgium. I did. I crushed it in the pools, ranked. I was like, I even just went straight into the second day. And oh, then nice. I get this really strong woman in from Korea and I was freaking out. How is that fair? It's not fair. And I was like, She's there. You're here. Yeah. That's just your story. So yeah, yeah, yeah. like what? But I, I totally pooched it. Like I was, I had lost the match before I even started because I was pouting still that I had to have her in the first round. And I was like, oh, wait a minute. She didn't lose. She didn't beat me. I lost. Yeah. There's yeah, a yeah, difference. Yeah. 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 I so, mean, I always try in the, but you know, it was like, duh. So I know it's still hard. Yeah. <laughs> How hard can we have to learn this lesson? <laughs> so. Many times I, I've, I fenced Kirsten Ball a few times. I don't know if you remember. Do you remember Kirsten Ball? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, um, I would, you know, get, get her and be like, oh, here we go. And it would go down mm-hmm. a priority and she would breathe sure. and hit me and I'd be like, oh, 
again. (laughs) (laughs) But isn't it great though? Like volume. I remember when when we trained in Europe, it was the volume that we got, like the amount of matches that we got compared to what I was getting in Canada before I moved there. And it made those moments you just described um, like less uh, sticking points. It was just volume. Go. Yeah. Like, okay, learn from it, learn from it. And Medyev's expression was just don't think about it. Like, just go. Like, Mm -hmm. I'm attaching previous experience. Like, you need to kind of recall, but then you'd get an opponent like you described, like in a, Christabel, like, oh, a ball, like, oh my gosh, I'm going to hurry. And then I'm like, wait a minute, I'm, if the volume is more and more and more, you start writing chapters in this story with the two of you that all of a sudden doesn't have the pattern that, you know, get to a point where you don't have that. It goes this way or it goes this yes, way. Yes, yes. You know, you change it because you had so much volume of just go again, go again, go again, which I find really cool even though it's exhausting. <laughs> so if that makes any sense. No, no, it, 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 it does. It does. It does. Um, it's, it's a numbers thing. And like my coach says it all the time, you know, like these hits, the ones that, you know, you do the right action and you get picked off, but they're like one in a thousand or one in a hundred, whatever. And I'm like, Oh, with you, it's like one in three, man. <laughs> yeah, I know exactly. Like More that's money. how it feels. But again, yeah, you're right. More eventually money. with so many, it will, you know, eventually start to go the other way. But when you're first starting out at, at first, for sure, it definitely feels yeah. very one, one sided. Yeah. And, uh, absolutely. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I, I know so much what you speak of. Like, and then the thing is, is if you do it on like as a young person, it would be like okay, the national level. Like, I I, I go into Canadian circuit tournaments, and I'd see that pattern, and then it would change a little bit, and then boom, I'm thrown into a World Cup circuit where I got a whole bunch of new people to to learn about and see these patterns happen in this volume where I don't get to see them as much, mm-hmm. and I could see that. And I'm like, and I'm like, I'm like, I gotta learn a whole new thing now, <laughs> but it made it interesting too. So I. It like it changes all the time, or, or young people coming up. You're like, who is this whippersnapper? <laughs> like, <"Why> <laughs> <laughs> they don't know what's going on. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> so yeah, it's a it's it's a cool thing. But I think yeah, it's the journey. I know it's a cliche, but you set a goal, but it really is the day to day in the journey. Yeah. About, so 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 Athens, two thousand four. The third time mm-hmm. Women's Epi was held at the Olympics. Uh, this was the first time that Canada qualified for the team event, correct? Yes. And, it was awesome. Yeah. And you were 33 at the time of the games, which is awesome, actually. Mm-hmm. And you'd already been on the national team for eight years. So how how did it feel, though? Um, mm-hmm. You qualified as a team. How, how was mm-hmm. that? How did that feel when you found out that you... you qualified? Um, it sounds... It's, I don't mean to sound... Uh, arrogant but there was such a strong plan mm-hmm. that it was just another tick on the box of what the execution was required so i can say that in 2000 just before 2000 olympics shireen had qualified team didn't shireen and i had a chat she went into uh, sydney i got to go to sydney watch sydney oh, participate nice. in everything but the stress it was part <laughs> of the toronto 2008 olympic bid so i got to really taste <clears throat> how cool an Olympics could be without the pressure. So oh, I kind of nice. got that out of my system. Mm-hmm. But then rumor had it, there was a coach there that was willing to take Shireen and Daniela Vavasur. And I pretty much popped my head out behind her and said, can I come too? He said, okay, I guess. <laughs> so I just, 
Hang on. <laughs> Just what picturing I think... you popping outside with you going, hi. <laughs> <laughs> what was this smiley Canadian and he's popping her. So he liked training. He thought, yeah, okay. And and Laura Flesso, who was training with him, had had it had been known that she was going to move on and wanted a different coaching uh, experience for her in the next few years, uh, next games. So we took that opportunity and part of, before we actually left almost, Shireen left a year later or a few months later, I left, like, I think we both left a year after that conversation in 2000. So January of 2001 or two, I can't, around there. But I remember Shireen and I talking uh, together about how we wanted to see if we could get qualified for team. And the two of us had this conversation, like, how do we do this? And we were looking around at all the young uh, fencers coming up and we're like, let's start recruiting them. Like, let's start putting a plan. And, and we like, like we didn't know what we were doing. We actually would go and could we have a meeting with you or chat with you? And I remember pulling Julie Lepin or Catherine Danette or Marina McConkey uh, and then uh, Mehdi of Peltier and even Magda Kroll, these young whippersnapper fencers saying, this is what we want to do. We want to qualify in 2004. And we would tell them what we were going to do. We're moving to Europe. What do you want to do? Like, mm-hmm. we, like hmm. we recruited them. We're planting seeds in all of them. Like, this is our, our what we're doing. And we need, we, it's not just the two of us. We need all of us to do this. Um, and then we would, and then we left. And I think there was like, a, you know, I don't think it was so strategic, but there was like, I wonder, you know, who's going to start stepping up. Julie was crushing it. Maria was crushing it. Uh, Catherine was coming up. Yeah. So. Then the traveling started happening and I was training with Danielle and so was Shireen. And so it, you could see they started sort of feeling like, hey, okay, okay. And then Danielle was looking at us and like, I want to coach this team. That's what he started thinking. So when I when I say that the plan, it became like all these pieces started falling into place, like training with Danielle really took this level of professionalism where you would all of a sudden realize, oh, I don't need to think about this other stuff. He's taking care of that. All I need to do is my work. Mm-hmm. And again, just, it, it was like, I remember getting our plan two years out from the games and he had all the tournaments on this huge Excel sheet of what we we're going to do. And then even had the Olympic games on the program. Like, and then we have qualified and then we do the Olympics. And I remember being like, what? But there was such certainty. <laughs> right. And he's like, we do these things, we do this and we do this, like two years out. And I have it even on my shelf where I go, it happened <laughs> because he had a plan. Like it was like, there's the plan. But like and in the moment like, you oh. are almost there, there is no other way. This is just a very procedural, the, like this is what we're doing and it's, this is the yeah. way and it's just going to be, this right. is what we do. Yeah. And also he'd done it so many times. We're like, right. okay, <laughs> like, how does he know what he's talking about? Um, and then along the way, um, it, it started happening. So when we found out we qualified, it still was an amazing moment. I think I, rem- I remember it was the five of us knowing that only four of us could go and three could compete individual. Mm-hmm. I remember we were in France, I think in Seymour, and we had qualified. It was official. It was like we, it, it had happened and we had taken like a, a, I think some beer and we went down and sit, I found some river. And I remember sitting under a bridge, all of us just drinking beer, just chatting, the five of us, like we did it. 
we did it. And I, I, I remember looking, it was dark and what we were doing, how unsafe was that? I don't know. But I remember feeling like there was this sort of satisfaction of the five of us sitting on the bank of this little river somewhere outside of Paris near a bridge, just like having a Heineken and talking about how we just qualified our team for the Olympics. Pretty special moment. Yeah. So, so three of you could compete individually, four of you on the team. How was that decided? Was it strictly on points? Um, uh, Top four, four who got to go was, from what I can recall, was just strictly points. And then who actually got to fence was the top three. But then who got to fence team was the, the, I think the coach had said the first person on ranking is going to be competing in team and the other two I decide. Right. Which was a little sticky. I think that became a bit challenging for um, for a few, myself and Catherine and Julie didn't know. Julie was the fourth alternate, but then Julie got subbed in. So I think the strategy from the coach at that point was that he wanted to put Julie in. Um, and it was hard. It was so hard because I could, I could see, I recall Catherine, as we were coming up to games, it hadn't been officially said, but she she started to feel like I'm going to get subbed out in team. And so it was a real mental distraction um, mm. for her and for everyone else. But the the challenge or the frustration or the anxiety wasn't a personal amongst each other. It was still a very united team. You know, um, I remember even, you know, you see storylines in movies, sports movies, where the, the coach or the enemy is outside the team. So we all project our frustration upon that person yeah. or that event rather than amongst each other. And that was sort of our, our scenario a little bit too. We were frustrated by um, things, but it was probably done tactically. I would think maybe a little too, like keep them cohesive, keep them with each other. I think that was one of our strengths was um, uh, there was a lot of love in the room. We just, uh, we knew what everybody was, was, sacrificing. Right, right. So if the coach doesn't ask you to make the decision about who's going to go in and who's going to, you know, he does it Mm. for you and then you guys can't be frustrated with each other. I'm pretty sure that was an episode of Ted Lasso this season. Yes. (laughs) Isn't that the best show ever? I love it. Ted Lasso's my favorite. No, it's totally true. He turns into that guy, right? The other guy. Uh, Led Tasso. Led Tasso. Led Tasso. That's right. He turns into Led Tasso. Right. He was he was Led Tasso for sure, Danielle, at that point. But I think what also was tough was um, it's a sport where you're so, it's like universities like this. You're so individually focused and prioritize your own career. It's an individual sport. You're, you're against one opponent. So it's very singular. And so creating, being in a space where there was <clears throat> such a team uh, um, frustration with each other, for sure, without doubt, mm-hmm. but a trust because the overarching goal was so such the, the motivation for all that, that that was without question. No one, no one's personal interest was above the greater good of the goal of the team, which um, was always a check for us all. Like we all want this. So we all want the same outcome and let's have fun. Let's have fun doing it. Cause what's the point, right? You can't, can't be ugly the whole time and, and you'd get over yourself quicker that way. Yeah. And also, I mean, it would be hard, but then again, you'd be like, this could be the only Olympics we get to. Like we can't, like, how do you not let the, the stress and the, 
decision making kind of ruin the entire experience, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think at the time you think there's more games in you. Um, I think we never thought like this was the last games because I think that just add would add too much stress of of the outcome, right. which I don't think it, it wasn't. We couldn't see far that far down the road until afterwards. Okay, are we going to do this again? And we were pretty clear that that wasn't even going to be an opportunity for us because they took the women's team event out for Beijing because they had to rotate medals. Because I don't know if you remember, they had women's saber was invited. Yeah. So we were, we would have done, I think, a 2008 if, if that was allowed. Um, I, I don't know if myself or Julie or Catherine or even Mediev would have moved on in our life at that point. Maybe, maybe not. I was getting, I was the oldest on the team. So I was, I was thinking mm, maybe I should have children. <laughs> so, so, maybe, uh, yeah, that should be something I should think about right now. When would I do that? <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. So, so when there wasn't going to be a team event, yeah, did you decide at that point that you were going to move on from a competitive fencing, or did you think, well, I might give it one one more go and try to aim for Beijing? Mm. I think I had in the back of my mind, I got married and my, my husband was living, um, still is my husband lived in Sweden. So he was a professional athlete. So I moved to Sweden, uh, trying to just, you know, you take a year of kind of like, it's hard, you know, there's a little like, what was that? We came so close, you know, the sense of purpose, uh, your own identity. It's like, oh, it's a lot to, to navigate through. And then his career, um, so I was training in a mediocre setting, questioning whether there'd be Beijing, but in my mind and in my heart, when people would tell me that there's hope, I just recognized there isn't. There's, I could just see the consistency and how the IOC was uh, delegating medals and that the FIE was saying, no, we're really trying to see if we can get women's EPE. And I thought it's not going to happen. Mm. Like they did it in 2004. They did like, there's, it's not. And you're asking me again to sort of, I just, I didn't trust what I was hearing because I felt like it was, I felt like, you know, it's, it's hopeful, but I, I, they've been really strong on this and I just don't see them budging. So that, in that case, but that final year, I continued to fence with freedom in a different sense. Our coach, Danielle, was not like Peter Ho, where he would stand by the side and be quiet. He was very vocal. So it was a nice reminder in that final year to be empowered, to make decisions myself, because I didn't really have a coach that final year living and training in, in um Sweden which I really enjoyed I thought oh this is fun and it was just my own outcome that was just the the catalyst but then um I went I I had traveled in the spring of 2005 and I remember this because I went to China and the CFF had asked that I fly with the national team that was flying out of Montreal which meant I left from Sweden to Montreal met them there and then flew to Vancouver to fly to China so I basically did an entire like the backwards way to fly to China and sure enough, I show up, I got no equipment. Um, we have all these young people who are wanting to make the national team in fencing. And I was just really frustrated, mm-hmm. uh, partly because I also had somebody waiting at home for me, which, you know, yeah. another part of my life, which I was more really excited about and wanted to be involved in. And so that kind of broke me, that uh. trip broke me. I remember flying there 
angry and frustrated. And then walking around the gym two days before the event going, does anybody have any extra equipment I could borrow? Because <laughs> my luggage didn't show up. Oh, no. Um, That's the worst. But fence really well. I remember fencing Britta Heidemann and like we going, us going into overtime. Like it was still a great moment, but I just felt that one kind of made me go, I think I'm done. I think I'm done. It's just, it doesn't feel right. And then competed to the end of the season. And then we did a World Cup in Cuba. And I remember saying to Julie, Shireen, Catherine, hey, ladies, I think this is my last World Cup. I'll do World Championships and then I'm done. And just for safekeeping, I then did the team event and blew my knee. Oh, <laughs> so I blew no. my knee in that event. So I tore my ACL and I was like, okay, I guess I am done. If so, there was ever a sign, it's... Uh... Yeah. It's, yeah, just in case you change your mind. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, thanks, did that universe. And, <laughs> thank you, universe. So, I, I then I had surgery. I did world championships without an ACL and I did oh then God. surgery. And, and then that was my next goal is just rehabbing my knee and then starting our family. And then my husband was able to travel it, like get other contracts, which made that adventure our distraction. But I was always looking at fencing, like, oh, maybe 2012 we'll have a team event and you know I don't know it was kind of you know yeah yeah it's hard (laughs) your identity is so it was and it was tough because my you know I was in Europe enjoying it but my identity now had become being my husband's support system which was great but not it wasn't that it wasn't fulfilling but it was just um I you know I was you know, what about me? You know, I don't want to, I didn't want to start to adopt the labels that came with this new chapter because I felt very second chair and my, I won't deny I'm not really good in the second chair. I'm just not, (laughs) because I that's going to be hard. Yes. (laughs) Yes. No, I totally, I get that for sure. (laughs) So struggle, struggle there. You, you first, saw Tanya Tigerson fencing and that was like mm-hmm. and Tanya is so cool she's cool is the right word yeah. to describe Tanya Tigerson really she's a cool cat she's a cool she cat. totally is uh but did you have any other mentors or were there athletes that you looked to for guidance and inspiration you know in the days before YouTube and online videos uh-huh. they were pretty scarce I mean now you can look at anybody and watch them I mean I can watch Natalie Mulhausen yes. or um Anna yeah. Maria Popescu God, she's amazing. Yeah. I can watch I can watch her all day, but you know, back in ninety-six or two thousand, I mean that wasn't really available. So how did you get right. inspired? In fencing, I would say uh, twofold. One as an athlete, I had a, a list always in my in my on my wall in my apartment in Paris or even in my journals, because I would write everything down of women that inspired me in sport. And it could have been Jeff, Jennifer Capriati, Steffi Graf you know, a mm. whole bunch of women that I always found inspiration from. Um, but in the world of fencing, I got front row seat for about six years to Renata Grugetska, who was from, who fenced in Toronto. Mm-hmm. She was on yes, the Polish okay. national team. She kind of fled, you know, immigrated to Canada around that time. And this was a woman whose mindset was, why not me? Like there wasn't this humility of walking into the World Cup circuit, like, oh, darn, Chubbs, I'm ready to be here. She was a force of nature, a screamer, like in your face. And I, we would, we trained together. We hung out together. I got to drive. We would drive to Montreal together. We even traveled together. I remember going to Poland, visiting with her family. We were, she was the, 
hugest impact with this mindset of um, when you when I found myself going into the World Cup circuit at times, I would always see this sort of feeling like we didn't really belong at times. This Canadian background doesn't have this huge culture or this sort of like uh, reputable presence in the sport mm-hmm. within the women's FA team. And I don't know if Tanya or Isabel Schwenard or all the, those ladies would agree, but I remember just feeling, oh, and I came from Pentathlon, so it was like, I'm trying to navigate this World Cup scene and seeing these Russians and these French and Italians who were looking at us like, and it was a game, but I remember Renata walking around just like, just a force of nature. And I know she did not care if you liked her. <laughs> she was just like, I won. And sometimes she would even, I remember us fencing once against each other at a World Cup circuit or, or at a Canadian circuit. And I was like, why are you being so mean to me? We're friends. And she's like, because I want to win. <laughs> like, oh my God. Yes. But it wasn't like she was mean. She was just really giving herself permission to do whatever she needed to do in, in the rules of sport. But it was just, and I thought she was a huge mentor for me. I would pick her brain. We would talk. I remember her criticizing me sometimes on how I was preparing for a competition, you know, getting so nervous I wasn't eating enough because I was just nervous. And she's like, you choke that down because you need it in about two hours. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, okay, mom. <laughs> it's like, she was amazing that way. I was a huge mentor. And then obviously my good, good, good bestie, Shireen, watching her pave a way of crushing it on the World Cup circuit was like like if she could do it why can't I do it and then having conversations with her when she was you know thinking about how what happened in the match and what didn't go well and what have you and just having somebody that you're inside their mind as they're doing it and you're going oh okay so you think the same way I do and and so it demystifies that kind of steps that you think are required you know yeah okay did you ever get a sense of how Renata was able to do that for herself, like give herself permission to be mm. that person. Um, I mean, it's something yeah. that I struggle with. I, I think yeah. a lot of young women struggle with, with that, um, and being able to turn it it's, on and off, you know, and I, as I talk to you and Shireen and Donna Vakalis, it's, or even, you know, Dr. Wesh, it's, there, there's something that, that, you women are able to do, which is give yourself permission to be that competitor and, and mm-hmm. be the winner and the why not, and then turn it off. Now I'm a mom. Mm-hmm. Now I'm this person and, and well, you don't need, well, not turn, turn it, it off, off, but you know what I mean? Like tone it mm-hmm. down. Yeah. Like, you know, what I, like it's a, yeah. uh, I mean, <laughs> I hear, I think I know what you mean. Like there's like, there's a, a hierarchy of needs in Nimbit. And I, a hierarchy is that because I was so driven on a, on a personal level that of what I was trying to achieve and competitive in that I would see other people succeed that I felt in arrogance, I'm better than, or why should they get it? And not me. Mm-hmm. They're no better than me. And so that would drive me. But then when I would come home, or be with my, you know, I took myself very seriously. And, and in hindsight, we do. And in a way, it's sometimes what you need to do. But then coming home to my spouse, who was also a sports person, he, we spoke the same language. Right. So 
there was a different feeling there. I would always be amazed at people, and you hear this, which I don't know if I, I'm not sure if I, I agree, but some women would have in Europe, they would do a Olympics, get have a baby a year afterwards, come back. I remember Shireen doing that too. And I'm like, oh my gosh, honey, how you doing? And she's like, you know, I remember meeting her at a World Cup just before London and we were in Stockholm. And I came up just to visit her while she was competing. She's like pumping in the middle of the night. I'm like, oh my God. That's amazing. um, That is amazing. I know. I know. She would be like flying in, doing this little circuit just to get herself going, pumping in the middle of the night, apologizing for the loud machine noise, and then going to do the World Cup. It's like, or the satellite tournament. And I don't think, it's sort of like, if you have such a need for something, and if you get it satisfied outside doing it in your sport because you want it so badly that when you come into your home, that itch has been scratched so much that you don't need it so much. Like, I don't mm. need to be competitive in my house as much. But if I don't have that, and this is what I suffered, I say suffered, but what I experienced when I retired, I didn't get it outside for my personal journey. Mm. So that when I, who I was inside my home sometimes was a little rough because I was like, who am I? I'm meeting, I'd be competing, I'd be pushing it. And it, I just was like settled. And, and it wasn't like I wanted to fall asleep. I just needed somewhere else to project that type of uh, psychological need for myself, which is like I needed I needed recognition. I needed achievement. I needed uh, development, security, like these things that I needed that I wasn't going to get in my relationship in the same way because it's not his job. Right. Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah, not, yeah. It's not my kid's job, you know. Yeah. So – it was hard though. I think what Renata was really good at was just making me demystify that I think I wasn't worthy of it. Why not? I don't understand. I remember one time Shireen had done a top eight place at a World Cup and it was like, oh my gosh, it's amazing. And, she, and Renata goes, she should. Like, what, you know, she's trained this long. She should by now. And I was like, that's going to, oh. And it was not, it wasn't meant in a mean way. It was like, those should be your expectations. Why would you apply so hard to something and not expect something that great for yourself? And I was like, good point. And <laughs> like, yet I think not? that's a very difficult thought pattern to overcome, especially if you mm-hmm. don't have people in your life who tell you it's okay. So for example, mm-hmm. I dated a guy when I was 18 who complained that I was competitive all the time. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. at 18, that's a big deal. Uh, and so it, you know, it definitely changed me for a long time. Absolutely. Um, I I get it. You know, and and it doesn't even have to be sports related. People could could say you're too competitive Mm -hmm. at school or this and that. And I, Mm -hmm. uh, you know what I mean? And so how do you get it back? I guess is the question too. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. So when, when you retired from fencing, where, how did you then find a new outlet that you could continue to be that competitive person mm. when you didn't want to like? Mm. Very cool question. So a couple of things I say is sometimes I also knew that competitiveness in me was like, I, I, I looked at her as almost like a little bit of a monster in me. And when having children, especially when they were just here on the planet, I needed to let that monster be asleep because mm-hmm. she wasn't going to bring a lot of value to who I was as a mom at that moment. Right. I didn't ask her to die. I just said, you need to be asleep right now. I could recognize that. And my purpose was, was my cup was needing to be filled in a different way. 
then seeing my own children grow and develop and it's fun and needing that competitiveness or kind of desire. I worked within sports teams. So I started to, I was in Sweden and I worked with a, a professional women's floorball team and I was a high performance coordinator. And I was, it was one of the best experiences I've ever had where I was um, the physical trainer in a sport I had no knowledge of but I knew how to win and I knew the mindset and I felt like I walked in there mentoring of sorts and guiding not through my skill because I hadn't I didn't know how to hold a club I didn't even know but just like that thing that Renata gave or Shireen gave or just like pay it forward and I remember the women were so grateful and so it like fill it up more for me. I'm like, you know, of course it's hard. You know, the expression, of course it's hard. If it wasn't hard, everybody would do this. Like, who do you want to be? Like, this isn't about that and and I, that environment. And then they ended up winning the whole championships, which just blew my mind. Um, I think that filled up for me something. And then when we came back to Canada in 2015, it was again, a recalibration of sorts. Um, to your point, though, I want to get back to that 18-year-old self when you had somebody tell you something. I think we've all had people, I got told this all the time, I was too competitive, too competitive, and particularly I wanted to be socially accepted. Mm-hmm. I had a high need to be liked by people, and it was hard, but fencing was awesome because I could hide behind a mask, I could scream, and I, I saw like-minded women mm-hmm. who were just like me. And I'm like, you all want the same thing. Why are why should I ask myself to be small when you're not going to be small? Right. And and finding that I I know this is a crazy thing. I often would talk to my future self like, OK, you know, I was 20, whatever, 25, 26. OK, I'm going to go for the next Olympics. And I, I would always say if, if I was 35 and 40, you know, I'll have wished I had tried. Uh, my future self will say to me, don't be a chicken. Try. Like, you're going to fa- fail. It's pretty good will, that you can you see won't. your future self at 25. <laughs> I know. Actually. I would go, I'm not, I would go at 40. I don't want to ever wish I had tried. And so here I sit at 50 years old and I'm, you know, I have aches and pains. I'm training. I'm like, your 60 year old self is going to say, you just keep pushing. It. Just like, what, why not? Like, what makes you want to, like, who says, why, why are you limiting things? Like, mm-hmm. that, that is the allyship you have with yourself is to recognize, oh, I remember learning this from myself when somebody made me think this way. I'm not blaming them. I'm just taking the power back and saying, I'm not going to yeah. believe that and say, that's not who I want to be. Like, my future self is going to say, don't hang on to that thought. Move on. Like, they're wrong. You're right. Go on. <laughs> like, evaluate and push forward. That's... Because they're moving on, right? They're living their own life. It's the thought that we have that stays with us. And if yeah, they're they're life, not gi- no. they're not giving us a second thought, right? No, I mean, they don't. No. They don't even probably even remember that specific. No, and know. that's the crazy thing that the things that we hold on to. It's like that person doesn't even remember mm-hmm. you or the things they said or care about it. <laughs> and yet, yeah. it's something or that they, we hold yeah. on to, and it it, it does so much damage yeah. for such a long yeah. time. <laughs> yeah. And then the thing is, is that sometimes when people say something to you, when you really sit and think about it, as a younger person, it's really hard to do this. But as an older person, you sort of go, is that about me or is it that about them? Mm-hmm. Like sometimes you'll hear the expression, oh, wow, you're really intimidating. 
And I'm like, I know, I hate that. Am expression. I intimidating or are you intimidated? Because those are two different things. Especially on this side of it, when, you, when, you, when you think to yourself, I'm not trying to do anything to you. No, that's the one no, that gets me when people tell me like, yeah. oh, you're, you're intimidating. I'm like, what, what do you think it is I'm trying to do to you? I, I'm, I'm really- <laughs> no, but that's the thing. Is it, am I intimidating? No, I'm not intimidating. You're intimidated, but yeah. that's about you. Yeah. Yeah. What, what, whatever you're choosing to evaluate, that's not, and I, and I shall go on. Like my job isn't now to make you not be intimidated, <laughs> but if, but I recognize that sometimes it's, it's everybody, you know, we all kind of cross paths. I know this is really philosophical at different places mm-hmm. and what have you. And it's just, uh, it's, it's being, you know, a little self-aware there and saying, okay, I get a little older, I know more. I'm not going to um, hang on to something as hard because like you said, nobody's, they're not even remembering and moving yeah. on or they, whatever was the reason for what they said. I don't know if it's a full picture of, you know, what I actually believe about myself. So why am I giving it air? <laughs> so <laughs> anyways. Yeah. And it's after you retired from the national team, as you said, you became a, a high performance coach for a national mm-hmm. team in Norway. It was Norway, right? In Sweden. Oh, sorry, Sweden. in Sweden. Yeah. yeah. And then you moved on to mentoring uh, corporations and businesses and um, yeah. Yeah, you've made mentoring and coaching, uh, you know, your your career. Um, mm-hmm. And so how much of that was influenced by the the mentors that you had in your life and the the people that came into your life that, that you know, what propelled you down that mm-hmm. that path? Well, I, I will say that in Sweden, when we moved, my husband and I moved back to Canada, um, I was living, I should just say, I was living in a country where language, the language wasn't great for me. Like Mm -hmm. I could speak it, but I wasn't going to be getting a corporate job. And I felt limited a little bit because I wanted to try to experiment and try something different. So when we moved to Canada, um, my husband was continuing to work in sports and uh, we were in Sweden passing children off at the door, like, here, you take him, I got to go out. And so it's all evenings and weekends. And so it was just not very conducive. And I was really hungry to try something different mm-hmm. here without losing my roots. And I thought, okay, I'm, I'm, I have this background and I want to use it in a different element. And I, I want to be independent. Like, I don't want to be too corporate because that's just not my style. Yeah. And I'm not going to be able to know about KPIs and our, you know, ROI, like, but I have some things that I can offer that are there's cross there's cross contamination in what I know to apply into to a business context. Um, so when I came here, I tried that and I learned a lot from my first uh, position where I was just coming in doing team assessments on organizations and being able to sort of create more cohesion and how they actually function as a team. And it's more just awareness and 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 the, and. In, investment of who do you want to be like that conversation Shireen and I would have before the 2000 after the 2000 Olympics where do we want to go who do we want to be like what are we trying to create Mm -hmm. and that's sort of what I would try to do for teams um and then um now I'm so fortunate that I get to work with these extraordinary companies that invest in in people in a different way. Um, I work with Spotify and I see these young professionals who are so eager to create good teams and advance their career. They're very high performers. And, and it, it's amazing to sort of have conversations. I'm like, oh my gosh, there's a lot of similarities to who you are as 
as people, how you lead people. I think what's also fun is there's a real satisfaction in development for me. So I really get a, a huge satisfaction in developing other people if I can be a part of their journey and where they're going, just like Renata and Shireen and other teammates and coaches have been to me. I think it's, as we get older, a really fun place to be. So that's what sort of drives me now. <laughs> And you got to go back to the Olympics, to Tokyo 21, yes. uh, in another capacity. So you've been, well, I should say you were the uh, a team, uh, like an athlete team mentor. So this is the third mm -hmm. Olympics that you've been to, and you've gone to them each in a different capacity, which is kind of, which yeah, is kind of interesting, right? Like all of your experiences <laughs> would be completely unique and different, you know, mm -hmm. kind of every time yeah. you got to go, but, uh, yeah. how did you get selected to be a, an athlete mentor and, and what was your role? Um, my role was a Canadian athlete mentor. So I had applied, seen the position, uh, being posted. I knew a few people when I returned to Canada, I had reached out to some people I knew at the COC asked around about it. Cause I was just really, the, the rings have a powerful hold over my heart. So I was like, how do I, how do I do this with, and then I had small children. So I took an, a little bit of a sideways path when I started, but I always kept my eyes on what the COC was doing, um, offered and reached out whenever I could. And I saw the position of athlete mentor, applied for it, uh, had inter been interviewed for it, um, and then selected. And it was myself and another woman who, who in, in, inevitably was not able to go because of COVID and the deferment of the games. So mm -hmm. she, it was just myself who went as the athlete mentor as in title. Um, and the other, there was two other women who were uh, titled, I guess, concierge, which is sort of like this sort of concierge service of like food and services. But with COVID, it was such a, you know, different environment that was created. But these were two athletes who had also just retired. So I found myself feeling like, yes, I was titled the athlete mentor, but Zan Murphy and Martha McCabe were both athletes in swimming and in basketball, where the three of us, I felt like were sort of a joint role. Um, uh, and, and it created such a, a fun experience just being with them, but also just being able to go and watch people going, you know, being a part of whatever part they would allow you to be a part of their Olympic experience for sure. It's amazing. <laughs> amazing. Yeah. And in talking with other Olympians, they've said that support during the Olympics, uh, by team Canada is amazing. So that would be, you know, mm -hmm. through people like yourself, but that getting support, financial training, which would contribute to confidence mm -hmm. and performance, uh, is much harder to mm -hmm. come by. Uh, you yourself went to France, uh, with Shireen to train, um, you know, and on the one hand, I guess if you're looking at performance and sponsorship and revenue, it's kind of about the results. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, if you don't get support, you don't get results. Um, mm -hmm. And, yeah. you know, and given the limited resources available, like how do we support yeah. our high performance athletes so they can set oh, goals my. and dreams? I, I think it's really crucial that we figure out how to to talk about supporting the athletes all the way through. And, and the thing is, it's not even at the, and now, now it's not even, uh, sponsorships and, and money. It's the nature of the sponsorships and money. I was reading an article before the Olympics about Melissa Bishop. I'm going to mess up her last name. Garo. Oh yeah. 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 And yes. she, and she, she, yes, yes. So she does some social influencing, uh, you know, mm. to try and, and get revenue. And so, and so now the athletes are under constant scrutiny 
um, social media. I mean, she's a more mature athlete, so I'm not sure uh, the impact on her, but certainly we saw the beginning of, of the bubble with Eugenie Bouchard, how she struggled by getting slammed in social media. And she was kind of, it was really on the cusp of it becoming, uh, you know, important. So how, how do we support athletes like financially? So they get the training they need to be successful. Uh, and then also buffer them from the inherent issues we have with them being on social media to get additional sponsorship and money to help. Like it's just, it's, mm. you know, there, it's so complex, it's so complex it's so now. Complex. And there's like an added level of complexity. And then you throw in the fact that we, uh, um, Francis Haugen, the whistleblower for Facebook mm. coming out and saying, guess yeah, what? Yeah, Facebook yeah. has data that Instagram hurts our kids. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. what is the, the role of, of mentorship now? And, and how is it, um, you know, that much more important, not just, and not even just to get people to the Olympics and survive them, but to keep them engaged in sport afterwards. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. That's another big one. This too. is a very loaded question. Um, it's about five parts yeah. long. <laughs> I was writing notes. I was writing notes because I was like, I got to make sure. So I will say the financial support and sponsorship piece, I, I have to also highlight that in France, I was sponsored, I think year one by a French company that oh, basically nice. changed my life. That if they hadn't given me money, the mental distraction I had on trying to pay my bills like that was, I could feel a thousand pound weight come off my shoulders mm-hmm. and I could target my energy more fully, um, which I'm forever grateful for. Um, and I can recognize if that they didn't do that, I don't know if I would have made it. I'm, I'm sure my family would have supported me, but it's just, it does something to yourself. So I do recognize that financial piece as huge. And yet I think that there is an effort. I know funding is better, but I mean, as an athlete, you become almost like your own little business. You have to learn these skill sets of how to market and promote yourself. And now Mm -hmm. with social media, as you mentioned, it's like times 10. And I don't even know how I would have managed it if that existed for me then. I would have been intimidated and self-conscious and overwhelmed and mentally just exhausted trying to do it well. Uh, I don't know. I (laughs) I don't have any... Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and then and then trying to navigate and not do it wrong in the sense that you say the wrong thing and you get slammed, yeah. but also doing it right so you get followers. But also how much yeah, time does that take? So so never mind the like oh right? Yeah. <laughs> so so never mind the emotional and social yeah. issues surrounding mm-hmm. it. It's how much extra mm-hmm. time does it take to actually have to do those things? Yeah. Right. I was thinking, as you said, that I, I have my own company right now. And I, I had actually written a list of things I got to get done this week. And one of them was social media. And I'm like, I don't like that part. Um, <laughs> so I, I, I don't know the answer there. I do recognize that it's harder. But I think what I see when I chat with athletes, there's such a strong self-awareness of who they are as people a little bit more so in that, and there's a language in, in how they can actually, um, there's so much more information about recognizing what you need to tap into your own individual self as in, okay, I'm a bit more introverted as I go into this. So I need to shut down. And it's just the language around competition performance that gives people permission to be who they are. 
pay attention to that. And if you're a person who's extrinsically or externally really motivated, sometimes it can be a real hot mess because you're just like trying to run around and it's complicated. I don't have an answer there. It, I think athletes struggle that it's a struggle for sure, but I do recognize that they're more equipped than I would be if I was to be asked to walk into that situation right now. They, mm -hmm. they, there's a learning that, that I see it's happening as for post I did, you know, life after sport, I, I can see that I didn't, we didn't really have a lot back when I competed, but now they have game plan from the COC. There is a, a springboard, a planning, a, a support for athletes to transition out of sport. And even since the games mm -hmm. up to, after Tokyo, two or three athletes have reached out to me who I knew were in going into retirement and asking, Hey, can I ask you some questions? I'm, I'm interested in dot, dot, dot Queens at Smith business school of business is now a program. RBC training ground has athletes being able to walk into their working environment to sort of springboard them into different, you know, different world than they're mm. accustomed to. So I see that there are foundations and there's you know, mental health resources that game plan provides every athlete after games, like all through the, our entire building, there was like the CR, the QR code of like scan, here are your services. And if you need help, we're here. That didn't exist as much that I was aware of maybe because I was living in Europe, maybe. but I, I could see that that was a, a really strong piece. And I think athletes are really more informed. Um, as for how do we keep people in sport? It's interesting that, um, women athletes particularly in these games crushed it and mm -hmm. not to take anything away from the men's performance but what I would love to see more of now I'd like to see those athletes seeing themselves in their coaching and in their federations in leadership more equality there so that they would and not that I know that it does or doesn't exist it's just in order for that to happen you need to see it to be it um and and I feel like at that level too coaches and and federations nobody can work for free like yeah you have to recognize to, to ask coaches to dedicate their lives to supporting athletes it's more than just the sport at that point in that they're helping create people and i don't know if we can dismiss the impact they have and in, in the importance that we should pay them well in in my belief because i think that's the only way an athlete would see that as a staying in part. I can recognize for myself coming back here, I even start started thinking, could I start working in fencing here? And what could I do? And it just felt too financially. I had different responsibilities here that I couldn't really entertain it as much as I would have liked to. As for staying in sport afterwards, I love that you're going to play soccer tonight and that you're still fencing. <laughs> I was like, wow. I'm telling you, if someone wants uh, my ankles, I'm out. <laughs> I'm out. No. Um, it's hard because I think when I, I remember meeting or when we were setting up this call, I had asked myself, when have I played? Not trained. But when have I played something mm -hmm. like a sport? And I would love to think that I could sh pull on my fencing equipment and play at fencing, but I, my brain is not one who can play at fencing. I, I played at it, but my level, the, it, the little monster, as I spoke of earlier, she comes out and she needs to sleep a little bit right now. She needs to spend her time somewhere else. Uh, yeah. I also don't yeah. like coming in and having myself taken out by somebody who's a weekend warrior. It's just not enjoyable for me mm -hmm. to be someone's coming home and just, oh, I just crushed. I'm, I, it, it's not, 
I've had that happen. I don't like walking in uh, being, um, yeah, my, it really frustrates me when I've had that happen. Um, and I took it too seriously to now do it recreationally. So I mm-hmm. do fence, I do tennis, even though I'm really crappy at it. <laughs> I, I like to, <laughs> my bar is so low that I can only improve. So yeah. And, and that's, that's uh, where we have a, like a, and that, how do I put this into words? This is where it, it gets difficult to continue the cycle of any sport, be it fencing or whatever, when mm-hmm. our, our best come back and it's like, I was too good and too competitive mm-hmm. and I competed too high and I need to, mm-hmm. to, to let that sport go. Mm-hmm. But you're the very people the sport needs to continue to develop mm-hmm. it. And it's a very, mm-hmm. and yet I, I totally get it. I mean, when I, yeah. you know, I mean, listen, I was never at your level f- at soccer that you were at, at fencing, but I had to, I was competitive enough that I couldn't do ultra wreck. It just, it was too yeah. hard. It was too hard. And I was, I, I the highest I played was premier. Um, yeah. and, uh, but yeah, that's the thing that that's the people you need. And, and speaking for myself, I mean, I've taken some coach. I'm not a coach. I am not, that is okay. not, <laughs> I'm a knowledge mm-hmm. sharer, but what you do with that knowledge, you can figure it out. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm not, that's, yeah. so I would never be the, the, and I'm sure there are, are lots of people who, when they're yeah. done, they're like, coaching isn't what they right. do, but there's yeah. a, or, you know, somehow if we can keep uh, people engaged and I don't even know how this would work. Um, but there's a role of like passive mentorship, I think where just being a competitor, being a professional, whether you win or you don't win, but you show up, you train like a professional, you, you practice like professional, you behave like one. How is that like passively mentoring the youth coming Mm. up to, to train and compete and behave in a certain way that's going to give them confidence, especially our young, especially our girls, um, Mm. and make them successful or just, or just even give them the confidence to keep going, even if they're not going to be at a super, everyone doesn't have to to compete for the Olympics. We can certainly, we can certainly watch Olympians and be like, Oh my God, that's amazing. But never Mm. actually have to get there ourselves. It's, it's, it's okay. Right. Right. Well, it's so you say that I was thinking I, when I came back, I was um, the coach or assistant coach for the Ontario Winter Games, the fencing, mm-hmm. women's fencing team. Um, I got to meet some young people. And I will say, as you say, there's some people who are just meant to be coaches. It's, it's sort of like some of us are meant to be right-handed writers and others are left-handed mm-hmm. writers. We can't change that. Um I think for me, I wouldn't have, I wasn't, I wouldn't have been able to do that because I was so still inside of it for many years after I competed and then having kids or just, you know, my, my interest changing, it, it lets me come back at it differently. I know if I was to talk to Shireen, she would be much more a technical discussion and like give really tangible parts. And I'm much more of a, like, in your head thinking more motivation, but just like analyzing your thoughts and how you're going in. Mm -hmm. But those are just different skill sets. And and Shireen's really good at that too, by the way. So, but, um, and I've worked with like the the women's team in Sweden uh, that I told about. And then even before I left, I was 
missed it. I wanted to get involved and I had been a part of uh, the national the, uh, Swedish team in EPE. They had asked me to train with them and sort of be an assistant coach. And I was trying to, as they were preparing to try to qualify for London. And what I what made me end up in, F, in essence stepping away is that ironically there was two men coaches mm-hmm. who were being paid and they were asking me to contribute the same amount of time and energy and fence with the women and coach them for free for a tracksuit. Mm-hmm. And I was like, yeah. And I remember looking at Emil Samuelson and Joanna, these young women who were amazing. And I thought, you don't know why, but I have to step away for you. Because <laughs> if I set the example that I should sit here and not be paid, yeah. and yeah. these other two men do, then I'm, and and I'm sorry, but you can call me privately all you want, but I'm not going to stay if they're not, if they're going to ask me right. to do the same for less. Like that's the example I'm setting too. And I'm no, not going to do it. So Coming here and helping, I think I have my my daughter, she's 14, or a tough time with athletes, young people during this post-pandemic, you know, staying involved in sport. Uh, that is an audience that I see a lot of and, and finding that little moment of you can be competitive as much as you want to be. Like, it doesn't matter. Yeah. <laughs> Don't let anybody tell you anything else. Um, and just uh, those sort of opportunities, I think it's sort of, I guess to answer your question, it's finding where you can contribute with it. That feels right. Like I'm, I'm on the OFA high performance director um, when they make decisions. And I, with the women's foil team in, in, in Tokyo, I just loved getting to know them and mm-hmm. hearing their story and chatting with them. And they did such an amazing job. Yes. And even post Olympics, we've talked a little bit on and off just because I'm like, hey, if you need me, I'm here. I think that is key too. they're on their own path, too. You don't want to push yourself in like you have anything to share with them that they feel like they already don't know. You really need to be not you, but anybody needs to be a bit more consciously aware of where they're at. Too. Yeah, 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 yeah. Almost <laughs> at like, yeah, exactly. Like you said, like, I'm here and you can talk to me, but I recognize that I'm not your peer and I'm not mm-hmm. directly in it with you. And I'm not, I'm not going to try to insert myself in that. Yeah. And I have no say whether you do well or not, That's really. Right. I have no say in whether you get to actually fence on team or not. So I'm a safe space if mm-hmm. you want to come chat. <laughs> it's <laughs> like, I kind of know what you're feeling and maybe I do, maybe I don't, if you want to talk it out. So that's, that's fun for me, but, um, yeah, I, I think I'm, I'm more of that kind of women in all sport, like kind of domain where I'm curious, how do we keep ourselves engaged and yeah, yeah. make it fun. Yeah. And, you know? and, and, you know, on a selfish note is I also want more women to play with. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Totally true. <laughs> all right. Last question. Sure. What is one like fail that's memorable and one win? And it doesn't have to be anything like uh, this is something like an action or an event or a point that you're like, oh, or something that you were like you did that was like really that you remember as being like that was awesome. Doesn't have to be okay poignant or anything. I tend to. Out of practice, I tend to think of all my successes much more than I think of my fails. And that's not to say that I just 
don't like thinking about my failures is, is that when I've worked with athletes, I also say to them, tell me the three things you're good at before you tell me something you need to work on. Because mm-hmm. if you don't know what you're good at, I'm like, you're, you're at the highest level of where you are. Why are you keep focusing what you're not good at or your failures? Because that's not what's gotten you, that you've right. learned from them. But like, if you're really offensive and you're really good at, you know, something, why are you so focused on your pericart being sucky? Like, yeah, tell yeah, me what yeah. you're really good at rather than dwelling on me about what you're bad at. Because I think that's a mental practice. So when you ask me of my failures, um, I can I can think of a few moments where I, I let some, I gave someone permission um, just by sheer thinking, okay, they know better or just that they had advised me without me being able to rethink what they were saying. Mm. And it wasn't a failure. It was just a, I gave too much um, permission to think that, Oh, well they know. And I'm like, but I know me. So why? So a failure for that would be just um, being confident enough to, to sort of take the advice and reflect and trust myself on what I knew what was best for me. So that that's not a, a a moment. I can remember one moment where I was fencing a woman who questioned a point. Um, the match was over. She argued it so much to the co- to the referee that he then changed his position Aww. and asked us to come back and fence. And I remember being so emotionally hurt by what she was doing and in, in the game that she was playing. And it was in that, and I was just like. I remember that being a failure going, I, I've given you too much. Mm-hmm. I've sh- I, I let you get into my head here. Sort of like, yeah, yeah. I, I can't believe. And then losing the match because she argued the point to a point where he, okay, yeah, let's do it again. And I looked and because I wasn't arguing back on my behalf, I felt like that was a failure. I was like, oh, wow. I just assumed the, that the right would rise, the correct would rise and realizing sometimes you need to step in and, defend your position um, and not let somebody bully you through. Um, that was a learning I've had. Um, a win? What was the other question? Yeah, about a win. Big win Something or? that you were really proud of. Uh, in, in sport or? or yeah, in, in sports. There's just so many to choose from. I'm kidding. <laughs> 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 the sarcasm. <gasps> um, I, I think in fencing, I remember having a list of women that were always crushing me on the World Cup circuit. Like I had like this little hit list of like 10 women. I was like, oh, Lukanova. And, and the few, a list was long. And I remember as the years progressed, I could see myself getting closer and closer. And then all of a sudden beating them. And I'd go knock them off. Like I'd knock them off the list. And there was one woman who I remember within about a, a nine or 10 month span, she crushed me at a World Cup. And then I went to another World Cup and I got closer. And then I was in Africa c- competing at a World Cup and she, I beat her and I made the top, 16 or top eight I can't remember and a few months later I, I met her and she's like I you've passed me I can't do anything on you like right. she was so humble to sort of say wow you've gone to another level and it was just really nice to have her be so honest and yeah, just cool. not honest but just um respectful and saying hey that was sort of a, a big one and I think what was also fun is that you would have women at that level to be able to have that conversation with each other I think was a huge win yeah like, that's amazing cr- yeah you crushed me like you're killing it so that was kind of I don't know I think that says a lot about her too so that was kind of cool yeah I had a few of those moments near the end that was fun that was fun long time ago though. <laughs> <laughs> 
feels like yesterday? Or does it actually feel like a long time ago? (laughs) You know, it does feel a little bit like a long time ago. I, uh, only because I have kids now and they're into different things and I'm talking to them at a level that they don't understand necessarily because they're just, they're younger. And so I have to like, um, and that makes me feel a bit older. I'm like, oh, right, that, that lens isn't right, completely there. So water it down. And as my husband will say, you're using too many words. <laughs> like, okay. <laughs> Two syllables and 10 words is all you got. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Monique, this has been a, a amazing conversation. Thank you so much for coming on here and, and talking to me today. Thank you for having it. So fun. So fun. I love that. I was listening to your podcast before joining you. So I really enjoy the work you're doing. It's so fun hearing your conversation. So thank you for including me. And um, asking for a friend, when do you think you might come back for one fencing bout? (laughs) One fencing bout. (laughs) That friend is me, in case you didn't get that. I'll come to you. Anytime, honey. I'll punch myself into my pants and I'll I'll be there. You just let me know when and where. I'm not even, yeah, most definitely. (laughs) Amazing. Thanks so much. No problem. I hope you enjoyed this episode. For more episodes, subscribe to this podcast on Apple, Google, Spotify, or Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts please rate, review, and share it too. For show notes, go to silvergoldwomen.com forward slash episode hyphen 13. Music for this podcast was crafted by the extremely talented Outwild. He knows what I like. Every time I hear these beats, I dance in my seat. If you like his music, you can listen on SoundCloud at It's Outwild. Follow him on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at It's Outwild. Update on my foray back into soccer after a 10-year hiatus? All guts, no glory. Until next time, play hard, play smart.